Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Let's take a look at the trailer for Room 237. Please welcome this evening's guest moderator, David Fear, and tonight's guest, Tim Kirk. Thank you so much for showing up and for sticking around. I don't know how many of you still own VCRs, but if your VCR starts doing that, please take it to a professional immediately. Don't try to fix the entire bleeding VCR thing on your own. I can tell you it'll, it'll end in tears. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of The Shining. I watched The Shining a whole bunch growing up. Uh, I always thought I was a little obsessive over The Shining. Uh, and then I saw this documentary and I realized I, I can't hold a candle to the people in this documentary obsessing over this movie. Yeah, few can. Few can. Uh, before we get into them, let's talk about you. Do you remember the first time you saw this movie? Yeah, I saw it um, when I was about 15 years old, uh, when it opened. I had a friend with a beard, um, 17 with a beard, and he bought us tickets. <laughs> and we went and saw it. And... I'd already seen a bunch of Kubrick films, you know, on television and so forth, but I had, this was the first one in the theater, so I really was looking forward to it. And I do remember that when the credits were rolling, I was just sitting in my seat, like, it's not over, right? I mean, I was waiting <laughs> for more, and um, so, you know, revisited a bunch of times over the years. So I was definitely ready for this project. Uh, this project basically started with an email that you sent Rodney Asher, right? That's right. I, um, you know, was just trolling the web like like we all do, and if I see anything shiny related, I would read it. And I read this amazing essay that was online with someone. One of the theories that's featured in the film, and uh, Rodney and I are friends and colleagues, and we've worked together on a bunch of stuff. So I knew he'd want to see it because he's a huge Kubrick fan. And I was surprised he called me like about 10 minutes after he got the email and we both were 
already Googling other theories, and and that's pretty much all we did for about eight months after that was just talk about The Shining and various theories we could find. You know, I've uh, I've got a bunch of friends that I uh, email article links on films to back and forth, and you know, there's some films that we both mutually obsess over, but I don't think any of us have decided to make an entire film uh, based on these obsessies. So how did you guys go from, hey, check out this really cool analysis of The Shining to let's spend years of our lives making a movie about these people who obsess over it? Well, I think part of it was Rodney made a really incredible short about a year before we started working the, the on it. The S from Hell, right? The S from Hell, yeah, which played at Sundance. Um, and it was about people who were um, terrified of television logos. Um, it's, uh, it was mostly about the Screen Gems logo. Um, um, but it was uh, in the style where he interviewed them uh, just by audio, and he uh, matched clips from films and um, recreations um, to, to their descriptions of their nightmares that were inspired by these logos and, uh, you know, horrific memories they had of the first time they'd seen this logo. And I was really taken with this style. So once we started talking about this, it seemed like it really could lend itself to that kind of treatment, this the Shining. And so I think that was where we started to hone in on we really need to make a film about this. And I think it was just the, the amount of information that we found our, we spend a lot of time, we both have small children, and we would go to the park and ignore them while we talked about the Shining stuff and trying to get it straight in our head. And I think the film, in a lot of ways, was trying to order that, trying to order what we knew. You know, there, you've, you've picked five really interesting participants to, uh, to come and share their theories here, but I, can't Im- I have to imagine there's, there's far more than just these five people that have let's say, slightly left-of-center ideas about what the movie's about. How did you guys decide on these five? Well, at one point, I think we were thinking this would be a more comprehensive overview of every theory on The Shining that was out there. That'd be a seven-hour movie. I know. Oh, 12 or more. I mean, it was insane. And I have this spreadsheet that I'm afraid to look at, which at one point I was trying to categorize each one and see where various people who had written overlapped, like the number 42 is in a number of things, and mirroring, and eyes appearing in the overlook, and a lot of stuff that we weren't able to get into in this film. At some point, it was just like, this is madness, we can't do this. But once we started interviewing a few people, um, you know, all of these people are very engaged and very passionate, and they had a lot to say about it. So the idea of reducing them to sound bites just didn't seem like it was gonna work. Right. Speaking of reducing things to sound bites, uh, let's take a look at a clip right now, shall we? Down with graph paper, I did not even begin to attempt to do them to scale. Let me see, I can't say which one I started off with, I don't remember, and just went through and decided I was going to do, try to do as much as I could, feeling that I felt eventually that there were places that I could plot out such as where the girls were killed. I was not absolutely sure at that point when I started out doing the maps where the girls were killed, but I felt that it was somewhere back around um, the area uh, where they lived. Uh, Suite number what? They live at uh, suite number three. When Jack is sitting typing at his typewriter and Wendy comes in and interrupts him while he's working, 
for those of you who have not seen this film yet, this is maybe the least obsessive moment in this movie, uh, which is saying quite a bit. Kubrick's, Kubrick's made several films, obviously, that are very open to interpretation. I can only imagine the stoned dorm room conversations that happened around 2001, back in the late 60s, or the notions of you know, free will versus you know, social issues in The Clockwork Orange. But what is it about this film in particular that seems to make it open to so many wild interpretations? You know, I don't know. I mean, we've come at that... A lot of making this film was coming at that from a lot of different angles. Um, I think, personally, part of it is it's set in the Overlook. It's set in a hotel where we have a lot of space and a lot of time to sort of move around and watch things and look for clues. I think also it's a puzzle without an ending. You know, there's really no conclusion. You think about that last incredible shot of moving in on the photo and then we pan down to the date and it almost reads like, oh, it's going to be this aha moment and then it's July 4th, 1921. Oh, okay. But it doesn't, you know, and you... So it's not like the sixth sense or something where you go, okay, I get it, and I can rethink the whole movie. But I don't know. There's something very mysterious about this film that really seems to capture people. Um, Eyes Wide Shut is now starting to gather momentum um, with people thinking about it. And well, and those are both. His, those are, I would argue, his two most dreamlike films as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. They're really. These are the two films where you start getting into what is real versus. You know what is actually happening. How much of this is taking inside or taking place inside the protagonist's head? How much of this is actually happening in the hotel or on the streets of you know, New York? In Eyes Wide Shut's case, right. And the the clip we showed, Julie Kearns, who's mapped the Overlook, has discovered that there's a lot of impossibilities. That there are windows that that have sunlight coming in them, but if you watch the film closely, there's a hallway behind that window. So, you know, it's interior room, you know, the window couldn't be there, and there's a lot of also hallways that lead nowhere, and and I think that that adds, you mentioned the dreamlike quality, and I think that adds to it is there's this sort of bad dream idea where you're just, something's wrong physically about the space. Right, and you know, they always say there's what the filmmaker intended, there's what ends up on the screen, and then there's what people in a room, internet chat rooms talk about. Um, and it does seem like people have really come up with some very singular, very intriguing theories about this movie. Oh, absolutely. And, and we've only got five of them. Right. Well, we look forward to the sequel. Well, thanks, thanks. 238. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to put this as delicately as possible. There's a disclaimer at the beginning of this trailer that suggests that the Kubrick estate was not part of the project. Um, I, I don't imagine Warner's was either... How did you manage to use this footage and use other, other Kubrick film footage to make this documentary? How were you able to get this released? Well, to answer the first part of your question, when we set out to, when we were talking, you know, we spent about eight months talking about this film before we started interviewing. And one of the decisions we made fairly early on was that we weren't interested in interviewing people that were involved in the making of the film or people that represent the Kubrick legacy or so forth, because we were really concentrating on the fans and on what happens to a film after it leaves the filmmaker's hands. So in part, that disclaimer is saying, that's not what we're doing. This isn't 
a behind the scenes look at The Shining. But you're absolutely correct. We did not make this with the cooperation of the Kubrick estate or with Warner Brothers, and we do use a lot of footage from Kubrick's films. Um, we had a very involved uh, clearance process. Um, we were able to get together a really great team. Um, we have a legal team of Michael Donaldson and Associates in Los Angeles. And if anybody's interested in uh, fair use and clearance issues, Michael's written an amazing book, or a couple amazing books on it. Um, we we're also bringing, able to bring in a couple friends of ours as executive producers, uh, Todd Hughes and P. David Ebersol, who made the film Hit So Hard. I don't know if you guys saw that. With, um, it was about Patty Schlemmel, who was the uh, drummer for Hole. Um, so they were able to help us, too. They had just gone through a whole clearance thing on that film. Yeah, I can only imagine between the music company and MTV and oh, all gosh. the footage you have to use for that. Oh, yeah, and especially because a lot of, yeah, it's MTV, especially. Um, so, you know, it was a long process, and it was, it was, it was interesting. I don't, I don't know how illustrious it would be for me to go through the minutia of it here, mm -hmm. but... Um, Oh, we've got all night. Oh, right ahead. Okay. Well, it involves spreadsheets. You guys make yourself comfortable, please. <laughs> there's uh, there's various highlighters in different colors. <laughs> um, but that's the long and the short of the process. Um, and the disclaimer is, of course, something that we wanted, but also something they wanted. So, I don't know. You know, you talk about... I mean, first off, Vivian Kubrick uh, made a very interesting, very revelatory uh, behind-the-scenes look. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's, on the, it's an extra on the disc that Warner's put out of The Shining, and it's, it's one of the few uh, actual, like, getting uh, chances you get to see Kubrick on set working. So it's, that stuff's been done. What you say about doing this more about the fans, one of the things that intrigues me so much about this film, even though, the, you know, I'm a Shining fan, so I'm sort of your audience, is that... You don't necessarily give credence to some of these theories. Like, there's nobody behind the camera going, "Oh no, no, it's totally Ned's. You're right. They faked the moon landing. This is all NASA." Um, but you're you're not being insufferably smarmy or smug or smirky about any of this either. Like, well, thank you. There's no sense that you guys are laughing at these people as they're going, "No, it's about the genocide of the Native Americans." Uh, so how do you how do you strike that balance? How do you make this film in which it doesn't seem as if you're legitimizing some of these theories, and yet you're also not kind of you know, winking and nudging about them either. Well, well, part of it is just an honest reaction. Each of the each of the theories we used are all stuff that both me and Rodney, when we were first reading them, or delving into them further, at some point, you know, the hair went up on the back of our neck, and we went, "Whoa, this is very convincing," you know. <laughs> and then it becomes our job to be as persuasive as possible for each theory as we're presenting it. Now, if those cancel each other out or have an argument with one another, you know, that's, that's part of the film as well. Of course. But, but, but also, we were just really policing ourselves. There was just no, we really didn't want to wink. And early on, we had a conversation with Jay Widener, who has probably one of the most out there theories. Um, he's, he believes that Stanley Kubrick was involved in faking the footage of the Apollo uh, moon landing. Uh, Jay is careful to say he that we we did go to the moon, but the footage we see is not of us going to the moon. Yes, and The Shining is essentially Kubrick's apology for sort of aiding and abetting this. Exactly, right? it's a coded confession and apology. Um, oh, but when we were approaching him about interviewing him, 
he was a little reluctant. And at one point, he just came right out. I asked him, like, well, where's this coming from? And he said, look, I'm just nervous that I'm going to talk, and you're going to have some other guy who's going to come on and say he's an asshole and he's wrong. And we said, look, that's just not what we're doing, you know? And so I guess that was sort of the commitment as well, you know? Right. Uh, if you did have unlimited footage and... Uh and the chance to make an 18-hour movie. Uh, what are some of the theories that didn't make it into the movie that you would like to include? What are some of the ones that you're, you feel bad didn't make it in? Well, there was a guy named Rob Ager who's written a, a lot about this. He's out of England. He makes his own sort of short YouTube films. Mm -hmm. And he's explored this and a lot of other films, but like some really interesting directions. And we actually talked to him about being in the film, and he feels like he's doing his own thing. Um, there's a guy named The Mastermind who has a very... We mentioned him in the film. And he declined. He was very... He has a very particular and strict interpretation of The Shining that he didn't feel belonged alongside competing theories, if, <laughs> if you understand what I'm saying. Yes, I do. Um, there's this whole line of the sort of Marshall McLuhan uh, angle, too, that the film is about the superiority of the of the moving image to text that's really fascinating. Um, those are a couple of the top ones that I would really like to have gotten into. Can you uh, can you discuss the editing process of the film because you guys do some really interesting things both in terms of using other like footage from other Kubrick films to sort of counterpoint it and, but essentially what you do is you you put viewers in the perspective of these people who are obsessing not over this movie but just sort of movies in general. You almost feel like you've been dropped into this cinematic hall of mirrors where Tom Cruise will, you know, look at a poster of The Shining and Scatman Crothers is watching the opening footage and uh, another audience from another movie is watching clips. It's 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 incredible the way you guys have set this up. Um what's part of Rodney's process is that um you know, it's like any director lays down sort of a temp. You know, we really cut. We did the process that we did is we sent all these people a, a sort of high-end tape recorder, and then we did an interview by Skype, where Rodney could talk to them, but then they were talking into the phone, but also into this recorder, and then they sent it back to us, and so we were able to cut. It was like a radio show first. You know, you cut a five to eight minute clip, Rodney would cut. Um, and then we start matching images to it. And also always leaving open the fact that we might go shoot some recreations, which we did, <clears throat> did some. Right. But also start plugging in footage from The Shining, but also films from other films. And I'm speaking for Rodney, but I, but I know that a part of that for him is that he felt that the people we're talking about are sort of living in this world, not only of The Shining, but of films, and that they're talking about, when they're talking about The Shining, they're also talking about references to other films that, that you know, inform their understanding of it. Sure, and then this, when they're talking, there's a, one of the theories is that The Shining is about uh, the genocide of the Native Americans, and it keeps cutting to other Westerns, and you start realizing oh, all these other Westerns that we've all grown up watching have in a way totally warped our idea about what happened to the Native Americans in this history. And so now this other film is informing what we've learned from other films and so on and so on. It's, it's fascinating. You talk about recreations too. I just want to confirm something. There's a scene where somebody refers to Kubrick moving something on a, on a shelf. That's the, that's the back of Rodney's head, right? That is the back of Rodney's head. And he got in. He yeah, made his cameo. Yeah, he made his cameo. 
As Kubrick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who else, right? Right, right. Directors, they're all control freaks. Well, that was funny because the, 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 the interviewee that we talked to was ref referencing a photograph of Kubrick carefully arranging cans on the larder in the, um, in the, the, the room where uh, Jack is trapped. And we looked everywhere for this photo. We couldn't find it. So we ended up recreating it with Rodney doing it. Oh, it's a nice touch. Well, thanks. Uh, just one last question before we turn this over to the audience. How, how has making this film affected how you watch The Shining now, or just how you watch movies in general? Well, I'm happy to say it hasn't ruined The Shining for me as a viewing experience. Oh, good. I thought it would, and there are a few things, like there's the boner scene that I, I just can't unsee that at this point. Yeah. Um, but but mo I, I was able to watch it again fairly recently as just a great narrative spooky story, you know, which I think is part of the reason you asked earlier why The Shining is that it's an incredibly watchable film. So it's not, you're just, there are a lot of films that you could watch that have hitting meanings and are thought provoking and might make you want to delve further, but maybe they aren't as fun and as watchable as The Shining is because you can watch that movie just as a good scary movie and and it works. It works fine as a scary movie. It works fine as this sort of endless puzzle text that you can go back to in which you're consistently being like, who is the person in the dog suit? Who is the person in the dog suit? Uh, or you can realize that The Shining is really about one thing and one thing only, and that's the decline of the Roman Empire. I've got a lot of theories oh, about this. I'll okay, tell you good. all about this once we're good, done here. Good, I'm But this is the true this. theory about okay. what The Shining's good, about. Good, good, Trust me. Well, I would urge you to write that up in eight-point type <laughs> and get it on the internet. Uh, does anybody in the audience have any questions? Hi. I was wondering if anyone talked um, about the book and its influences that it played upon their theories or where they saw a contrast between the book and the movie and if there was any other movies or series that the same people had, you know, maybe focused on as well as if, like, maybe there's a common thread between each of these people that had theories that latched onto other movies as such. Um... Well, the first part of your question about the referring to the text to the Stephen King book, that's a big jumping off point for a lot of people is you know, that Kubrick changed things, you know, very specific things from the book. And sort of the assumption is if he made that change, then that's something you should pay attention to. Um, you know, in the book, it's room 217 where all the scary stuff happens with the witch. And Kubrick changed it to 237. Now, the, the sort of accepted understanding of that is that the, the hotel, which served as the exterior, the Timberline Hotel in uh, Mount Hood, Oregon, and asked them to change it because they had a 217. Um, most of the people we talked to don't believe that. Um, and I would have to say that, OK, he may have changed it for that reason, but he picked 237. He could have picked a lot of other numbers. So, yes, that's a lot of how the text intersects. Though I asked one guy, I was talking to him about the book, because we both, Ronnie and I were revisiting it as we were doing it, and he was like, the book's a trap, man, stay away from the book, you know? It's just, um, so, so, th so there's that. And then the second half of your question was, are there other films that the people that we've talked to have delved into? Um, right. Um, 
you know, off the top of my head, I mostly just talked about Kubrick with these folks. Um, um, yeah, I mean, they all have different interests. John Fell Ryan, who in our film staged the film showing forwards and backwards at the same time, has this incredible Tumblr site called KDK12, which is the call letters for the ham radio for the Overlook. And he writes about some other stuff. Um, so you might check that out. But I don't have a great answer to that. I'm sorry. Doesn't one of the participants talk about spending time at the Colorado Hotel that Stephen King... It was the influence for Stephen King writing the book? Yeah, it was the... King wrote the book based on the Stanley Hotel, which is in Estes Park. And he actually, like Jack, spent like time there in the off-season and wrote the book there. Right. And uh, Bill Blakemore, who, who believes the film has to do with the genocide of the Native American Indians, among other things, went and visited and talked to the manager there about Kubrick's research process and how he sent a team there to research the Overlook and stuff about the Native Americans and people in the area. So that film, that, that place also informs right. the making of the film. Another question? Hi. Um, does anyone in the movie talk about the poster slash photo that is above Dick Halloran's bed in the hotel room that he's in? And you know what I'm talking about, right? I, I do know. I do know. And what, why is it there? What does it mean? I don't know, man. That is so puzzling. I mean, from the first time I saw it, and every time, like, what is that? I mean, that whole room is so... The only thing I can think is is just it's this incredible contrast to the Overlook, because it's those crazy, like, colors and everything, and the sexuality. But, but no, and I think you need to get to a computer very quickly and start working on, on your own theory <laughs> on it. No, you found a hole in the in the in the in the study. I wish I had an answer for that. That's a great jumping off point. That's a whole other movie. Yeah, it's an unsolved mystery in itself. Another question? Hi. Um, what's the financial profile of a movie like this? Can you actually make a living making interesting documentaries or is it basically an artistic or, you know, creative labor of love? I mean, I can see that with you. I mean, you love the topic, you went crazy on it, but is it just about that, or is there actually uh, you know, a way to be happy about doing that at the same time? Um, you know, this is the first documentary we've made that Rodney and I did out of love and so forth. And, and we both have, through the process, we've had a great time, and, and it's been great. But there has been like, God, how does Errol Moros do this? How is he <laughs> still going, you know? So, you know, it is tough. It's not a... I think you do have to love it, because it's not... It's not you're not in it for the the big bucks. I, I can't imagine you would go into a project like this either thinking like, oh, we'll make millions of dollars by doing this. It has to be. I mean, I don't imagine you make a project like this and use all this footage and even dream it's going to get released in any sort of form whatsoever. It's got to be a labor of love. Yeah, I mean, this, this release with IFC and, you know, we played a lot of festivals all over the world is just so far uh, surpasses our expectations for this film. Which were really like you know a, a storefront with our friends and folding chairs, you know, right? And then a life on YouTube, you know. The first time I saw this movie, it was at Sundance. It was the midnight screening you guys had at the uh, at the Prospector Theater, and all of us got out. It was about two o'clock in the morning, 
because we had to stick around for the Q&A, and we're all sitting there in the snow waiting for a bus, hearing these like spooky noises going by, just just waiting for somebody with an axe to come out behind one of those things and start chasing us. On, on Sidewinder. On uh, Sidewinder, yeah. Uh, yeah, which yeah. is the most like shining-ish road in, in Park City, totally, to say the least. Yeah. It's scary stuff. Um, were there any discussions about how they came about casting Nicholson and Shelley Duval? Hmm. Uh, not, not any of the people we talked to, um, but I do know that um, I did read that um, Kubrick was really insistent on Duval, on Duval after uh, Nicholson had already been cast. And in the book, I know that character is much more of a sort of voluptuous woman and so forth. And, and I guess Nicholson was really pushing for casting someone closer to the book's vision. But, um, but Kubrick was really insistent on her. So I know that you know, that was Kubrick's choice, but I think almost all of them were Kubrick's choice. Yeah, I think Kubrick was supposed to work with Jack Nicholson on the Napoleon project that he was working on, but he was really insistent. I think it's a book called The Cinema of Stanley Kubrick where he, he's talking to Diane Johnson and he's really insistent about using Nicholson for this part, and she finally asks him, like, what is it about Nicholson specifically that you want, like you want him for this part? And he said, it's his mouth. Whoa. It's something about his mouth there that I keep seeing him as Jack Torrance. Now I've got to watch the film for <laughs> just, just his mouth. Wow. That's great. Yeah. That's awesome. What's next? Uh, we are working on two new documentaries sort of simultaneously. We've done a couple of interviews on both, and we're just sort of waiting to see which one really sparks us that we want to spend 14 hours a, a day working on for the next couple of years. You right. Know? Um, One's a little closer to this. It's about a film and a filmmaker, and an, another one's a little further out there, but it's also pretty horrific, so it kind of fits within the horror sort of genre. So well, That's great. I can't wait to see them, and then I, I can't wait to go online and find some crazy theories about these movies that you guys are making. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, man. <laughs> Ththanks guys, a lot. Join me again. Thanking Tim Kirk. <laughs>